Pod Save America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave. My last <laughs> official interview as president of the United States. <laughs> All right, so I've been briefed. You've been briefed? <laughs> was it an intense briefing? It was. <laughs> You've been told what this goat rodeo is about? <laughs> All right, let's do this. Okay, welcome to Pod Save America. We are here today <laughs> in the Roosevelt Room at the White House with President Barack Obama on his... His last interview as President of the United States. Mr. President, thank you for joining us. It is wonderful to be with you guys. Let me preface this by saying, I cannot believe that people actually listen to you guys. <laughs> nor, uh, nor can we. Yeah. I mean, it, it's shocking. But, but, you know, it should give everybody out there hope that they can do something with their lives. Uh, you too can be a podcast host. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Land opportunity, baby. Is this the most ridiculous thing you've done? Uh, no, as you, well, as, as you well know, Axe's <laughs> podcast was mainly because he took his more seriously. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, what do you got? All right, okay, uh, so, come on, let's keep this thing moving. If you could go back in time and talk to 2009 Obama on his first day in office, mm -hmm. what piece of advice would you give him right before he walks into the Oval Office? You know, I, I would tell him that... You have to spend more time thinking about new ways of communicating with the American people. You can't be so intimidated by the way things have been done in the White House because the communications landscape is shifting. And you know, when when you think about you know the dilemmas that we were confronting, right? The economy is collapsing. We're still in two wars. I'm always surprised and, and gratified about how we got, I think, basic policy right. Mm -hmm. And that was mainly because we just had a lot of really smart people around working really hard and uh, had a good process. But, you know, Lincoln said, with public opinion, there's nothing you can't do. And, you know, without it, there's not much you can do. And we were going to get clobbered in 2010, probably no matter what we did, just because on my watch, people were really hurting. But I think that I, I might have said to 2009 Obama, think about how you got here and spend that same amount of effort and energy touching people directly as opposed to standing behind a podium and you know, giving a bunch of grim you know, <laughs> lectures. Just some grim speeches. <laughs> they were. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and remember, people got, I think that's where the impression arose that... Uh, now, Obama's really, you know, Spock-like. Because yeah, I was talking about, well, today we lost 800,000 jobs, but here's what we're going to do. It was hard to seem cheerful and The Recovery light. Act is divided into three parts. <laughs> hard, to be, hard to be a man of the people in the different. Yeah. <laughs> the, the recovery. We always said as speech writers, we're going to have that on our gravestone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, th I think that... The other thing I, I, I would have probably told myself is to make sure that 
the team is supported and encouraged and you're paying a lot of attention to process. You know, I, I think we ended up being good later. We got, I got better and uh, I think the whole team got better. But, you know, in those early days, I think you don't appreciate how much just making sure that everybody is communicating well together internally and looking out for each other. And, you know, so there were, there were some, uh, there were some messy meetings. <laughs> You know that, uh, that I don't recall that at that, all. <laughs> yeah, that kind of wore people out. So you just finished your final press conference, right? Was it fun? It was actually. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I always enjoyed mm-hmm. press conferences. I, I, you guys who that, were watching them and had to prep me and then clean up afterwards may have not always yeah. enjoyed them, but but I did, and I I was impressed mm-hmm. that there were no six part questions. There were just five part. You know, <laughs> no, I think two part was yeah. was the most we got. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I don't know whether that was. You know, just a sort of farewell bouquet to me. <laughs> but, easy. Yeah, it's like, oh, I didn't have to write any of the questions down. We wanted to make the real news here. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Is you, you know, you've talked a lot, particularly in your speech in Chicago, about the impact of people living in bubbles, mm-hmm. right? How do you think in this sort of polarized media environment, with full self-awareness that you're talking to a progressive media startup, uh, yes. how do you think people can get out of those bubbles in this sort of polarized media world? I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about this. I, I don't have uh, clean answers to it. Some of it is just technology-driven. If you have a phone and you are able to visit everything on the web with a touch of a button, you are going to get into certain habits. And yeah, you can lecture people about, you know, go to the site that makes your blood boil, with you, which you completely disagree, but it's, it's hard to do. Um, I don't think you're going to get a huge amount of take-up. And I think that it's unrealistic to expect that people are just going to put their phones away and you know, spend all their time listening to NPR uh, or, or you know, other media that I might think is more balanced and more accurate. On the other hand, I, my, my instinct is everybody hates media right now. Everybody knows that the political culture doesn't work. So that has to be an opportunity, right? There's got to be a way in which we can create sort of a virtual public square that Mm -hmm. feels better for people. My suspicion is that, particularly after this last election, there's a a sizable, maybe still silent majority that just is tired of being mad all the time and would appreciate people listening to each other. So... One of the things I'm going to be spending some time thinking about is how, how do you build that civic culture, both in the real world and in the virtual world? Because if we don't, I don't know how we solve problems. We can, each side can win elections. Each side can, in that tug of war, kind of move five yards this way or that way. But tackling big challenges of the sort that I talked about in the speech, you know, tackling inequality, thinking about what are the new economic models that uh, we're going to have to come up with, that's going to require building consensus, and we are very far away from doing that right now. Yeah. So you have kept your promise to ensure a smooth transition. I, I've tried to. You, yeah. And, and beyond that, I think it's fair to say you've shown tremendous restraint in not criticizing the president-elect um, on things that aren't just policy differences, but you know, any of his Twitter comments or anything else like right. that. Why did you feel 
it was so important to do this. I know it was tradition and, and Bush did this for you and, yeah. and you really respect that. It seems like there's a larger principle at stake there for you. Yeah, I, I, I just think that the election was so fraught with anxiety, controversy, anger, yeah. uh, that it was important for everybody to have a cooling off period. And I figured that would have to start with me. It is also my belief, and, and you guys have all worked here, so uh, I think you'll appreciate this, that whatever your ideological beliefs, this place has to work <laughs> in order for people to get their social security checks and to make sure that veterans are getting care and to make sure that our troops are properly equipped when they go into the war theater. And so whatever differences you have, you want to make sure that at least the basic ship of state is functioning. And I think in part because the president-elect may not have anticipated winning or at least didn't have the traditional party establishment behind him. It meant that they were going to have to build up a team pretty quick, which made it that much more important for us to uh, be able to provide them a pretty good blueprint of of just the basic blocking and tackling of running the government. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know that that didn't always satisfy some of the emotions of folks who were disappointed with the election outcome. Uh, But, you know, I mean, that's my, as you guys know, that's my... Sweet spot. That's my wheelhouse. Is, you know, people not, not being fully satisfied. With, uh, we may uh, given given vent to uh, to how they're feeling. You've talked a lot since the election about what the Democratic Party should do differently, and you've said, you know, you got to show up in these small right. towns where these voters went right. from you in twenty twelve to Trump uh, this past election. When the Democrats show up in those small towns, what do you think they should say to those uh, Trump Obama voters? Well, I think the first thing they should say is, what is it that you guys want? I think you start by listening and trying to tease out from people what is it that they're most worried about? What are are the stories they're telling themselves about their opportunities and and their kids' opportunities? And and if you spend some time listening, then you'll learn a lot. And I have my suspicions about what they'll say, which is they feel as if there are cities and power centers uh, around this country that are doing really well, and they feel like nobody's paying attention to them and that things are deteriorating. And the way of life and security that they used to feel they had isn't there anymore. And the question then for Democrats is, in addition to a whole bunch of policies that are tried, true, and I continue to believe are important, like raising minimum wage or rebuilding our infrastructure around the country so we can put a bunch of hard hats back to work or making sure that we're investing in our school systems from early childhood education through community colleges and, and, and having lifelong job training. In addition to all that stuff, I do think that the Democratic Party is going to have to maybe be a little bolder in how we describe our economic options going forward. There's been an argument about trade in the Democratic Party, and that's been one of the the few fault lines in what otherwise has been a pretty unified Democratic Party. And I said uh, in my speech in, in Chicago, look, we all want free and fair trade, and you can argue about negotiations with 
China or take a tougher stance with Mexico or what have you. But the fact is, and the data just shows this, the jobs that are going away are primarily going away because of automation. And that's going to accelerate. And driverless Uber and the equivalent displacement that's going to be taking place in office buildings all around the country uh, is going to be scary for folks, which means that we are going to have to start thinking about where do jobs come from and how much government involvement is there in the marketplace? And do we have a, a, a job sharing economy that works uh, so that everybody has work because it turns out that work's not just about finances, but it's about dignity and feeling like you got a place in the world? And how do you pay for that? And if it, more and more people are working in the service sector, how do we make sure that they are getting paid enough? So in addition to making an argument that if you want a better deal, then you better start unionizing and organizing because otherwise you're going to get screwed. In addition to making the argument that if you're in the service sector right now, you you should be fighting for a higher minimum wage because across the board, everybody in the service sector is going to be better off. In addition to those traditional arguments, we, I think, probably have to be more creative about anticipating Uh, what's coming down the pike because automation is relentless and it's going to accelerate you saw just what happened to retail stores sales this this past christmas (laughs) amazon and online sales is is killing traditional retail and and what's true there is going to be true throughout our economy you're listening to pod save america Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Podsafe America is brought to you by Helix Sleep. How long have you had your mattress? For most people, it's probably time for an upgrade, right? Well, Helix has exactly what you need. Everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. Uh, I have a Helix mattress in our guest bedroom. Mm -hmm. Every single person who stays with us says, that bed is so comfortable. Where'd you get it? You know what I say? Where do you say? Helix. I love my Helix mattress. I have a Dawn Lux. Dawn Lux. It's very comfortable. So Lux. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash crooked and use code helixpartner20. I think it's fair to say that Republicans have, over the last eight years, eroded certain norms, democratic norms. Uh, I'm not just thinking about the last election. I'm thinking about Merrick Garland, the debt ceiling, confirmation process. Do you think that that progressives should follow suit to win more? Or do you think that, you know, it's more important to be the institutionalists and, you know, I'm, I'm in this world where there's so many institutions breaking down, even right. if we face political setbacks, right. you know, what, what do we do with that? Yeah, I, look, I, I think that it doesn't help the progressive cause to undermine norms that help support a progressive society. <laughs> so... So in that sense, yeah, maybe we're a little bit disadvantaged relative to Mitch McConnell. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know how we're served with more judicial vacancies. <laughs> I, I don't know how, how well served we are with you know, us trying to suppress voters the way they try to suppress voters in a place like North Carolina. Right. That, that doesn't sound like what a good like? solution. But, but in terms of cooperation, in terms of you know, how, how does a Democratic Congress work with President Trump, my suggestion has been that you stand your ground and you, where there are areas of agreement, just make sure that you're negotiating tough and negotiating well. I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Trump says that he wants to build infrastructure. Well, I've been, everybody around this table knows that I've been on my infrastructure you know, advocacy uh, since I came into office. So that should be an area where our interests meet. But how you pay for it is really important. And if President-elect Trump or you know, the Republican Congress tell you, you know what, right now deficits don't matter. Let's just go ahead and finance a big infrastructure boom. It's important for Democrats to anticipate that two years later, they'll suddenly come back and say, you know what, 
we all voted for this infrastructure. Now the deficits are terrible. Deficits count again. And this is why we need to cut Medicaid. So I, I think you look for ways to cooperate uh, where you can. But I think you do don't play the sucker. Make sure that that cooperation does not uh, carry such a high price that it undermines uh, some other key things that you care about. And I think where Democrats should be pretty hard-nosed is around some of the basic institutional and structural, you know, systems like voting and keeping politics out of the criminal justice system uh, that you know, if, if we lose on that front, then the democratic process doesn't work. Then people don't have the chance to say, you know what, we tried this thing now. We want something else to, to replace it because, lo and behold, uh, you know, power has further entrenched some of these structural advantages. You've said one of the things that you're going to do when you walk out of here is begin thinking about your memoirs. Um, you know, you are a writer first and were a writer before you were a politician. Have you thought about how your memoirs might be different than the traditional presidential memoir? Uh, yeah, I've, I've given that some thought. Look, I, I, hopefully um, people don't just buy the book, but they read it too. <laughs> so that would, that would be one. You, you get paid either way. <laughs> I don't, yeah, but you know what? You, you, you kind of want folks to feel like they, they got something out of it. I, I haven't given a lot of thought. I've been too busy. The, the one thing that probably is a carryover from the way we wrote speeches and, and a bunch of you guys around here worked on speeches with me. I want to tell a story as opposed to just have a series of lines, right? And so I, I think the equivalent in a book is if all it is is and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it's chronological and it just uh, sort of uh, becomes a, a, a detailed diary then I'm probably not going to be able to transmit to people what I found has been most interesting about this job. Uh, and that is the stories of the American people, certain themes that come up again and again, the growth that took place for me and for you guys and a lot of people as you wrestle with uh, being an outsider and then suddenly you're on the inside and how change happens and what blocks it. So I think the main thing probably is, is just making sure that uh, whatever I write is a little more thematic, which is good because, you know, I've, I've... How's that journal? Well, that's, that's the point is, is uh, I think partly because the first two years it was just such a fire drill. You know, I just, you know, I'd, I'd be finished by midnight and the idea of sitting there and then trying to write down today i met with mitch mcconnell exactly <laughs> or you know here, here's what uh you know the afghan review process was like oh boy. um you know i just i so maybe just as a consequence of not having been like jimmy carter and meticulously recorded every single thing that happened to me every day i'll be forced to write thematically uh a lot of details are lost that's good mr president i was lucky enough to to be a part of this journey on the 2004 Senate race, and I was looking through old pictures the other day, and I saw this, this rinky-dink downstate Illinois tour we'd announced in Chicago, and Sasha was so little, she yeah. was still in the First Lady's arms, and it just... Then I ran into Malia the other day, and she was telling me about uh, the gap, gap year, year in college, and yeah. it just... 
I couldn't process it. Yeah, I know how far we've come. And I'm wondering if you've had any time to do that. And if you think that there's an inflection point along the way that was like, that was the moment in hindsight, the 04 convention speech or Iowa, I'm going to name other things where I was, uh, attending those events. <laughs> <laughs> what role did Tommy play in your eyes? I think it's fair to say that, like Zelig, he was, he was there at every inflection point. Um, now, look, uh, you, you guys were there, and, and you remember. Uh, look, t- 2004 gave me a national platform, and, and that was different. Although, for me at least, winning the Democratic primary in that Senate race was the inflection point. Right. Because my bet always was that if I'd won that, and I won that Senate seat that I would have a platform, and I had some confidence that I'd have a message that potentially resonated. So in terms of the presidency, look, uh, you know, winning Iowa was at the heart of of everything that happened, not just the fact that we won, but how we won. I continued, and I've said this before, the night of the Iowa caucus was my favorite moment in politics. Mine too. too. (laughs) And that was before it was announced that we had won. And I've told this story about just going to the school where, you know, I I was going to kind of shake some hands as caucus goers flowed in. And it just felt good. You could feel it. It, it, it. Not for me. It just, it felt good to see all these people from all these different walks of life and backgrounds and they were just going to go into a gym or a classroom and they were just going to make an argument about why their candidate was best and why these issues were important and you, you could just feel th- this spirit and you said this is how this thing's supposed to work right at its best and and it rarely does mm-hmm. but this this is that thing that started you know, two and a half centuries ago. And if you could duplicate that night and that moment across the country and around the world, you just feel, you felt at that time that there wasn't a problem we couldn't solve. Yeah. 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 I was in a half-empty gym with an old man playing accordion working for Hillary, and it felt, <laughs> felt, felt different. <laughs> I d- you didn't have that same feeling. <laughs> just slightly different. Slightly different. <laughs> You're listening to Pod Save America. Pod Save America is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. alone? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. The experts at Fast Growing Trees curate thousands of plants for all climates, locations, and needs. They're available 24-7. You can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, landscape design, and how best to take care of your plants. Landscaping, you know, it's, it's, they may, you know, it's expensive. expensive. It's expensive. And honestly, like, it's, it can be harder than you think to keep these plants alive. We've yeah. killed off a couple of them in our For day. sure. But, you know, with, with Fast Growing Trees, you got this uh, support line 24-7. You call and you say, hey, how do I keep my lemon tree going? And they say, water it more or yeah. something. Anyway, very excited about Fast Growing Trees. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And Pod Save America listeners can get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code CROOKED at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com. Use the code CROOKED at checkout. 
fastgrowingtrees.com, code CROOKED, offer is valid for a limited time, terms and conditions may apply. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. The year is 2011. <laughs> yes. So we work on the correspondence dinner. Talking right. about you are focused on the Bin Laden raid. Right. We are writing jokes. Uh, we write a rant about uh, an apprentice host. It's the funniest speech a president's ever given at the correspondence dinner. May have also caused him to run. Are we responsible? Uh, how should we feel about that? <laughs> you know, I, I, the, uh, I, 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 look, that, it was a funny night and and john you, you know you did a great job but but, but <laughs> I, mean, I mean i do notice a certain theme which is is that you know everybody's questions seem to be centered on uh yeah we're journalists their their, their, their moment in the sun I, I think we give ourselves too much credit to say that, you know, that's why trump won uh, you know he, he had churned up that whole birther thing uh well before that night which is part of the reason why it was funny yeah um, and so, uh, you know, and he's, he's a very effective marketer and, uh, grabs attention as well as anybody, uh, in our culture. So, so cle- clearly he had his sights on something. And, you know, what I, what I remember about that night, uh, more than anything else was, uh, the fact that the next day we were going to be, you know, the very next morning. We were going to be making as big of a decision as I made during my presidency. So it kind of washed away pretty quick. Um, And, you know, what I also remember about that moment is the rapidity with which we went from uh, the Bin Laden raid and folks outside Washington chanting Mm -hmm. USA, one of the magical moments uh, uh, of our time here, to debt ceiling and... The economy Back to the grind. might be yeah. on the verge of collapsing again after we had just spent you know, two years trying to yank it out of uh, a great recession. Um, you know, I, I think that's uh, one of the lessons you, know, you were asking earlier, John, about what, what I tell myself. I think I was pretty good about this, so I might not you know, use my limited time travel on, on this piece of advice. <laughs> but, but, but just understanding the Im- enormous ups and downs of this place and, and uh, you know, the way in which everything feels like it's going great and then suddenly uh, you can hit a pothole and, you know, you're careening off the side of the road. It, it, uh, and being able to maintain some sense of equilibrium through that process, I think, uh, is pretty important. When, was your mo- when were you most scared in the White House? What was your scariest moment? Well, I think it was that moment uh, when John Boehner didn't seem to be able to generate the votes yeah. to make sure that the U.S. didn't uh, 
default. I remember starting and, drafting the speech. Yeah, we had to start drafting the speech, and we were having these conversations with Jack Lou and others about what options, in fact, were available because it was it had never happened before, and there were all kinds of wacky ideas about how potentially you could. Coin. You know, have this massive coin. I mean, it, which, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 was, it was some like <laughs> some primitive, yeah, <laughs> some you know, it was like out of the Stone Age or something. You know, you're you, and I pictured rolling in some coin for for <laughs> those who are listening. It it, it it gets pretty technical, but there was <laughs> there was this theory that I had the authority to just issue this. Uh, through the the mint, I could just issue this massive a tr- trillion dollar coin, a trillion dollar commemorative coin, commemorative <laughs> coin, and, and that on that basis we could try to pay off our uh, U.S. Uh, treasuries. And it was a very realistic possibility that uh, we couldn't get the votes for that, and we couldn't get uh, those debts rolled over, and we would be in a situation where uh, technically we were in default. And and at that point, you were in uncharted territory. And I, and I remember, and what was also true was that, in addition to talking to Jack Lou, Treasury Secretary, and my speechwriters about it, a speech, you know, there were also questions about whether any actions that I took might be violations of the law, and so we had to be talking to lawyers um, about, you know, uh, potential challenges and legal actions and lawsuits from bondholders around the world and. Not fun. It, it, it was it was my favorite night. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what was your favorite night? You know, I've I've, I've said this, and it, it it has never stopped being my favorite night. The, the night we passed uh, the Affordable Care Act, that was a big piece of business. Yeah. And it was hard, and it was tough, but I still remember Axelrod, who who's a wonderful daughter. Uh, has had severe epilepsy most of her life, uh, coming up to me and hugging me in tears and, and just reminding me of, of what it, it had been like for him when he was a young reporter and had no idea how he was going to pay the bills for uh, his daughter's treatments and the risks of whatever job he took, whether that stuff was covered or not. And it was very personal for a lot of people. And I think it also was a moment when you saw real courage out of members of Congress. Some of my favorite members of Congress voted for this thing. They lived in the toughest districts. The politics were bad. They ended up losing. Undoubtedly, consultants were telling them that they might lose their seats. They were all pretty new young guys who were at the start of their careers. And they said, you know what, this is why I'm here. And uh, it, was, uh, it was similar to that Iowa night in the sense that it vindicated a certain kind of politics and public service and why you get into this stuff. Who do you see out there in the Democratic Party today as a rising star that sort of has that sense of principle and courage that you see coming up, the new generation? You know, I, I think there's a, a bunch of folks who are doing really interesting stuff. Um, my guy in Missouri, Kander. Uh, who, who lost, but seems extraordinarily talented. Seems like a sharp guy, and I hope that he uh, gets back on the horse. Uh, you know, I, I remind him and others that uh, I lost my first right. federal race. You have mayors like Garcetti in L.A. or 
Lander in New Orleans, who I think are really, uh, Kasim Reed in Atlanta, really talented, smart guys who seem to be able to navigate a lot of the ideological nonsense and just stay focused on getting the job done. In Congress, you know, folks like Kamala Harris, who just got elected, people who've been there a while, like Michael Bennett, really good people and really talented and in it for the right reasons. So, and, and then we've got a bunch of guys who used to work with you and are still trying to do something with their lives instead of having podcasts. You, know? <laughs> you got, you, you this know, is you a got, launching pad for Favreau 2024. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got, no, you got Michael Blake, you know, yeah, uh, you know, who's now, I gather, running for vice chair of the DNC yes. and, you know, guys like Lesser and, you know, in, in, in Massachusetts in the state Senate, um, you know, so I just feel like there's a, there's a generation out there that's moving. There's a little bit of a gap. In some ways, you know, I came a little, I was a little precocious, came, showed up a little earlier than maybe expected. And so there, some of the talent is uh, a little younger or just getting exposed, just getting started. But they're coming. And that's part of what makes me optimistic. This is Pod Save America. A lot of people that listen to this are people that care about the Affordable Care Act, right. and they're looking for ways to help. What would you tell them about the ways that they can get involved, be encouraged about fighting to preserve the gains of this bill? I think the work is local as opposed to federal. I would pay a lot of attention to what the Tea Party did fighting the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you, you may disagree with the Tea Party, but they were effective in making sure that their views were heard and amplified. And so people working locally at town hall meetings, writing members of Congress personally, working local news, and you know the, the advantage we have is the truth is on our side. There are a lot of people who have been helped. We don't have to gild the lily on it. We don't have to pretend that there aren't some challenges uh, in terms of people whose, whose premiums may need to get subsidized a little bit more. You know, there are rural communities where the choice of, you know, providers, doctors, hospitals isn't as big as it should be. Uh, but generally speaking, the more we tell a story about how many people have actually been helped, the more pressure we are placing on this Congress and the president-elect to deliver on their claim and their promise that they can provide the same coverage or better coverage to everybody cheaper. And, and as I, I meant what I said, if, if they actually could do that, I'd support it. My guess is they can't because we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, could we do it better? And we knew that uh, the politics of some of the things that we, some of the elements of the Affordable Care Act wouldn't be easy to sell politically. The reason we did it the way we did it was because that was the best option available in a really complicated uh, system. So I, I would just encourage everybody here, you, you can find a whole bunch of organizations that are uh, trying to amplify the importance of this issue and, and uh, organizing, but uh, focusing on not just the Beltway, but focusing on congressional districts, town hall meetings, district offices, if members of Congress are getting flooded with phone calls and hearing a bunch of stories and local newscasts are talking about people who are going to lose their health care coverage, then at minimum it puts pressure on uh, 
the incoming congressman and, and uh, administration to step up. Mr. President, um, thank you so much for your time. I'll give you one more question. You've talked a lot about uh, we're all trying to get our paragraph right in history. Yeah. What do you hope that paragraph says about you? You know, it, it's probably too early for me to say. And, you know, since I'm notoriously long-winded, it probably spills over into three paragraphs. <laughs> then I got, got to call up Favs and say, man, how do we cut this thing? Um, I, I hope that it tells a story of a presidency and a, and a period of time in which the values of inclusion and opportunity and community and democracy were advanced that you know we pointed the country in a direction in which every kid mattered and in which treating people differently because of what they looked like or their faith or their sexual orientation became less acceptable and we started rebuilding the ladders of opportunity for people who feel shut out from the economy. And most of all, that we made people believe that it is possible, if, you, if you're willing to get in the arena, uh, to move history. You know, when, I, when I think about will most gratify me, it'll be if 20 years from now I can look back and I can say, well, look at all these people who first got involved, maybe even when they were too young to vote in government, politics, issues, nonprofits, public service. And that wave just kind of like cleansing wave washes over uh, the country. And if that happens, then the details of how we dealt with climate change or whether the individual responsibility mandate on the Affordable Care Act uh, was the right approach or not, uh, that becomes less important. Because, you know, if we're getting the broad direction right, this is a pretty ingenious country. They're full of ingenious people. And we'll figure it out. And that's what I want, is I want everybody to, to feel like we can figure this out if we just don't waste a lot of time doing dumb stuff. <laughs> Good paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good paragraph. We always wanted to thank you for doing the podcast. For yeah. giving us jobs. For the opportunity you gave us. And we're trying to think about the right way to how we think about you after all of this. And it, the thing is that for most of us, it's been 10 years of our lives since yeah. we went to work for you. And in, in that 10 years, you never disappointed us, never gave us a reason to question it. And we're just really grateful for that. So thank you. Yeah. That means a lot. You know, you guys, uh, you know, you, you guys were... Uh, the change uh, that we were waiting for, <laughs> according to some really fine speechwriter. <laughs> All right. I'm Thanks, proud of sir. you guys. Uh, Thanks, and, uh, uh, yeah, the work continues. It does. Man. Yeah. It does. Take care. Thank, Thank you. Thanks. Last interview. That's it. Done. You did it. <laughs> Subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes every Monday and Thursday.
Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.